John Gee is an Egyptologist. He, uh, he is a longtime speaker at FAIR, and he's written several books on Book of, a- Book of Abraham and also books on apologetics and keeping the faith and losing the faith. And uh, he's written an excellent book on that as well. It was very popular. And so with that, I'll turn the time over to John Gee and with much appreciation. Uh, thank you. I'm almost as surprised to be up or to be speaking to you as you are to have me addressing you. If I'm looking over my shoulder a lot, it's because I don't have a screen to see what my slides are. And so I'm having to see, and I don't have a, a written talk. So we're. Um, when they say to always be ready to have an answer, um, <laughs> uh, hopefully I've got one. So my topic here is lessons on doing apologetics. Uh, there's a little story behind this that will figure into what I'm doing. Uh, a couple of months ago, I, my attention was drawn to uh, a work by a novel or a novice apologist who is trying to do apologetics and as many people who are new he made some mistakes uh, I am going to actually quote him to show that I'm not making this up uh, but I think there's some lessons that we can learn and so if you're just starting out then maybe we can give you some Lessons on how to do things uh, better. Um, so the first lesson that comes in doing apologetics is why are you doing this? Now, all of us have personal reasons that we may have for doing this. There are also some other reasons that we might have for doing apologetics. Uh, the obvious one, First Peter three fifteen, to be ready always to give an answer, and the Greek word term there is apologion, to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you, with meekness and fear. Um, I can understand the fear a lot because you don't know necessarily how you, this is going to be. Your answer is going to be received. Uh, other ones, Doctrine and Covenants 123, I won't go through all of it, uh, but Joseph Smith says it is an imperative duty to do apologetics. Um, the famous quote by Austin Farrar, though argument does not create conviction, lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. You need to have an answer because if you don't, it will be abandoned. Um, Elder Oaks uh, also talked about how it is a an unassigned duty. Uh, he was addressing this to BYU faculty and administrators, but uh, says, I'd like to hear a little more... Talks to, quoted Elder Maxwell that 
building the Nauvoo Temple, you needed both people who both build and occasionally who wielded both both trowels and muskets. And Elder Oaks, uh, just before he became president of Oaks, said, I'd like to hear a little more musket fire. Uh, Elder Holland, uh, we ask you as part of a larger game plan to always keep a scholarly hand fully in the face of those who oppose us. And uh, this one from Christian Smith, who isn't a member of the church, sustaining belief commitments to ideas and practices that are difficult and costly requires an account or narrative that satisfactorily explains to neophytes and doubters the reality and reasons behind the belief commitments themselves. So uh, discipleship is both difficult and costly, and we need to have an account of it to explain to people who are new or to doubters why we're doing this. So, what I'm... The novice that I had, whose work I'd picked up on, picked up on this random fact. According to one survey, 36.5% of those who who left the church said that they left because they stopped believing there was one true church. <clears throat> That's the issue. Uh, and so we're going to deal with the so we'll deal with this issue as an example. Um, lesson number two, know what the church's position is. So before you go in responding, make sure you know what the church actually teaches about this. So in this case, uh, let's go through a few quotes from the 1970s. Marion G. Romney, not only did the Redeemer personally name his church the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as recounted already, he also declared it to be the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth, which, which I, the Lord, am well pleased. Okay, so there's the this statement from the 70s. Uh, from the 80s, Bruce R. McConkie. At the direction of the Lord, Joseph Smith organized the only true and living church on earth. Church is an organized body of true believers. It is the congregation of those who have accepted the holy gospel, and the gospel is the plan of salvation. The higher priesthood administers the gospel. The church is the vehicle through which the Lord's affairs on earth are regulated and through which salvation is made available to all who believe and obey. It lays out some of the grounds besides quoting the relevant scripture in Doctrine and Covenants. One, the 1990s, um, President Hinckley, I wish that each of you would remember that tonight you heard me say that this church is true. Other churches also do much good, but this is the true and living church of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name it bears. Be true to it. Cling to it. If you will do so, it will become as an anchor in the midst of a storm. Um, anchor in the midst of a stormy sea. It will be a light uh, to your lives and a foundation upon which um, to build them. I give you my solemn testimony that this church will never be led astray. Uh, so in 2000s, Elder Packer, each of us can receive assurance which comes through inspiration and testifies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is just as declared to be the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. Note this scripture keeps coming up. And uh, finally, 2010s, uh, to pick a, a sample, one of the junior apostles, Elder Gong, the world is in commotion, but in his only true and living church, there is faith and no fear. There is a consistency in how the brethren have interpreted this scripture. So, And this is the scripture where Jesus declares that this church is the only true and living church upon the face of the earth with which I, the Lord, am well pleased, speaking unto the church collectively and not individually. Um, so, lesson three, be in line with the church's position once you know what it is. So our novice claimed that the church's position seems to be the hybrid epitome of naivety and arrogance, and that it made others grow apprehensive, not amused and aggravated. And we might see how, ask how this is in line with President Hinckley. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. A minister said to me, it is egotistical to say that. I said, I didn't say that. The Lord said it. I am only quoting. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We can and must recognize the good in other churches and in other people. We can disagree without being disagreeable. We must be tolerant. We must work with others who are engaged in good causes to bring about good results. But we must never lose sight of the fact that the God of heaven brought forth this work in this dispensation of the fullness of times and that his true church might be upon the earth. Um, novice also claimed being the only church religion is implausible. After all, a considerable portion of the thousands of churches and religions in the world understand themselves to be the singular or best or most complete path to salvation or enlightenment. Elder Packer. They claim that one church is not really better than another, just different. Eventually the paths will converge. One is therefore quite as safe in any church as in any other. While this seems to be very generous, it cannot, just cannot be true. While the conversion path idea is very appealing, it is not, it really is not reasonable. Suppose schools were operated on that philosophy fee, with each discipline a separate path leading to the same diploma. No matter whether you study or not, pass the test or not, all would be given the same diploma, the one of their choice. Without qualifying, one could choose to the diploma of an attorney, an engineer, a medical doctor. Surely you would not submit yourself to surgery under the hands of a graduate of that kind of school. But it does not work that way. It cannot work that way, not in education, not in spiritual matters. There are essential ordinances just as there are required courses. There are prescribed standards of worthiness. If we resist them, avoid them, or fail them, we will not enter in with those who complete the course. Do you realize that the notion that all churches are equal presupposes that the true church of Jesus Christ actually does not exist anywhere? Um, lesson number four. Be in line with the data. So the novice claims it is fallacy, re, folly relentlessly to trumpet an answer to a question 
fewer people are posing without also persuasively addressing questions that they are in fact asking. Well, are they not posing this question? Um, turns out there's some data on this. Uh, this March, they released the fourth wave of the National Study of Youth and Religion. And uh, so we can analyze that data. And these are religious adherents by religion who believe in only one true religion. Of course, Latter-day Saints at the top at 81.9%. But evangelical Protestants, 60% of them, believe that they're the only true religion. And even if you go look down at the Jewish number, one out of eight uh, millennial Jews believe that theirs is the only true religion. So still one out of eight are thinking about this issue in that way doesn't mean that this is suddenly irrelevant. The data just doesn't support that. Moving on to lesson five. Remember that Christ is the head of the church. So the novice claims, the notion that other religions are all untrue or dead runs aground and not primarily because of political correctness, even if some succumb to this, but because the notion collides with direct experience, common sense, respect, and charity. Well, charity is the pure love of Christ, and it's Christ who said that there's, that this is the only true and living church. Is this implying that this person has more charity than Jesus Christ? Um... I have a hard time swallowing that one. Um, Remember, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 10. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. Remember that we want to get to the point where our lives are approximate um, where our character traits approximate those of Christ, but we're not going to outdo him. Lesson six, be careful about your assumptions. And along with this, lesson seven, understand your sources and use them properly. So our novice wants to explain the passage in Doctrine and Covenants. One, this is the only true and living church by a passage in a letter from Joseph Smith to Emma in 1832 where Joseph Smith closes the letter saying, you must comfort yourself knowing that God is your friend in heaven and that you have one true and living friend on earth, your husband, Joseph Smith, Jr. And that's, the Joseph Smith Jr. is the signature at the bottom of the letter. Um, You could punctuate this differently depending on your understanding of that. But uh, Joseph Smith as the one true and living friend. So the assumption that the novice has made is assumes that it's Joseph Smith and not Jesus Christ as the author of Doctrine and Covenants 1, even though Doctrine and Covenants 1 is pretty specific about that even in this passage. And if you look at the fuller context of this letter, Joseph writes to Emma, 
I hope you will excuse me for writing this letter so soon after writing. Um, one of the things that's interesting is we're missing the previous letter because the the only letter that survives is months before this. Uh, for I feel as if I wanted to say something to you to comfort you in your peculiar trial and present affliction. Emma's having a hard time. Um, he later says, I pray God to soften the hearts of those around you, to be kind to you and take the burden off your shoulders as much as possible and not afflict you. I feel for you, for I know your state and that others do not. So when Joseph Smith says that he is her only true and living friend after mentioning God, God knows her troubles and God can help her. But on earth, only her husband knows the troubles that she's suffering at that time. And so he is a true friend to her in that sense and would be there to comfort and help her if he could. And living meaning, in this case, mortal, because while God knows her troubles and Joseph Smith knows her troubles, he's the only one who is in the mortal sphere at the time and this can describe himself as living. And so Joseph Smith in this letter is using true and living friend very differently than the Lord is using it in Doctrine and Covenants 1 for true and living uh, church. So the assumption there about who is speaking in each case is important and you need to make sure you know the sources and the context that they actually are giving. And lesson number eight. Where will ask where will this lead? Where will your efforts lead to? Can you predict some of that? So our novice was arguing that uh, the church really isn't the only true and living church. Well, where does that lead? Well, as uh, President Oaks says, as we see threats creeping up on persons or things we love, we have the choice of speaking or acting or remaining silent. It is well to ask ourselves, where will this lead? Where the consequences are immediate and serious, we cannot afford to do nothing. We must sound appropriate warnings or support appropriate preventive efforts while there is still time. So, fortunately, the National Study of Youth and Religion asked the question, do you believe, which best describes your, your view of, of religion? There is one true religion, there are many true religions, or there is no true religion. So they asked the question, and uh, because they've released the data, we can plow through this, and we can look at uh, how this interacts with other facets that they ask questions about. And so we're going to look at the effects of this on beliefs and then later behavior, because we have this very rich database that we can look at. And I've gone through and analyzed the data on this material. Uh, 
So just a little word of caution. So while we'll show her a lot of correlations, correlations aren't necessarily causation. We'll kind of look at this from two different angles. Um, One of them is that teaching the church is uh, the only true church, what effect that has, uh, even though we don't know if this is necessarily a cause and effect relationship. So remember that caveat as we go through some of these numbers. Let's look at beliefs. So belief in God. So on the on each of these three bars, the one on the left is those who believe that one there is one true church. Uh, one in the middle is those who believe that there are many true churches, and the one on the right is the one that believes in there are no true churches. So we look at the belief in God. Um, Ninety. of those who believe there's one true church believe in God. Uh, Whereas those who believe there are many true churches, that's a little less true. And those who believe there are no true churches, not so much. Uh, Whether they feel close to God, and this is interesting because if you don't believe there's one true church, it's pretty much the same. Um, whether they view having a relationship with God as important, that makes a difference. And whether they've made a commitment in the previous five years to God, uh, you can see that those who believe there's one true church are, the majority of them will have made a commitment to God in the previous five years, whereas those who don't are most likely not to have. Uh, if we're looking at this from a causal point of view, if you change your belief on one true church, if that's causal, then we can expect degradement on all of these stats if we abandon that. Uh, is Jesus the Son of God? Well, 95.1% say of those who believe there's one true church said yes, and uh, significant drops if they don't. Belief in prayer and miracles. Um, so 79.6% of those who believe there is one true church experienced an answer to prayer in the previous five years. Um, and 91.5% believe in miracles. Um, and 64% had witnessed a miracle in the previous five years. Um, which brings up a really interesting note if you look at that uh, far-right column. There are actually more people who don't believe there are any true religions who say that they've witnessed a miracle in the previous five years than actually believe in them. Uh, If you look at your Book of Mormon in Alma, there's a nice explanation for that. Um, Is there life after death? Well, if you don't believe there's only one true church... Chances are you don't believe there's life after death. Uh, Other beliefs. uh, Belief in angels. You're more likely to believe in angels and more likely to believe in demons if you believe there's only one true church. Uh, If you don't believe there's one true church, you are more likely to believe in astrology or reincarnation. Beliefs about religion. So... Those who believe there is one true church are more likely to respect organized religion, more likely to say that it is relevant, um, 
more likely to have positive feelings about the religion in which they were raised and less likely to think that religion is solely a private matter, meaning that I'm just going to keep whatever I believe or don't believe to myself and no one else needs to know about it uh, or maybe I, they don't want them to know about it. Um, whether they feel that religion is important in shaping daily lives. And here we've got the yes and the no. You notice those don't add to up to 100%. Some people weren't sure. Um, but if you believe in one true church, religion is more important to you. Uh, looking at moral social issues. These are social issues that are also moral issues. Um, and you notice that uh, if those who believe in one true church are much likely to think that abortion is acceptable or that same-sex marriage is acceptable, no matter what the Supreme Court says. Attitudes about sex. Um, if you believe there's one true church, you're more likely they more likely to think that people should wait until they are to have sex until they are married. You're more likely to believe there's one true marriage partner, I guess. Um, and and the that matches when they ask, is married sex okay, later in a different spot in the survey. And the, the numbers, of course, coincide. But uh, if you believe in one true church, you're more likely to think that sex has a sacred meaning to you. Um, judging others. Well, most people think that uh, people, too many people are negative, angry, and judgmental. But if you don't believe in one true, true church, you're more likely to judge other people as judgmental than if you believe in one true church. Uh, relativism. So if you don't believe in one true church, you're much more likely to believe that morals are relative or that we should change them over time, or that it's okay to break the rules if you can get away with it. It's okay to pick and choose your religious beliefs. Or that uh, right, but you're less likely to think that right and wrong are what are determined by God's law. Um, doubts. So the percentage you had had at least some doubts about the religion in the previous year are you're much less likely to have had some doubts and these are lumping together the categories some doubts and many doubts uh, if you believe that one church is true so so that's the beliefs let's look at the behaviors Percentage of those who attend at least weekly. If you're, uh, if you believe that one true church is true, you're just over fifty percent likely to attend weekly. And if you don't, you're a lot less likely to attend weekly. Prayer. Those who prayed at least daily, uh, almost two thirds of those who believe that one church is true pray at least daily. Uh, but only about a quarter of those who believe many churches are true pray daily. 
studying scriptures. Um, 47%, just under half of those who believe that one church is true, read their scriptures at least weekly. Uh, Much less likely if you don't believe that one church is true. Giving to charitable causes. Well, um, you're much more likely to give money and time to charitable causes if you believe that there is one true church. And these are charitable causes in general, not just uh, religiously related ones. Promiscuity. Well, let's start with a caveat here. In modern terminology, uh, sociologists have noted that people define promiscuous as having had sexual relations with more person than the individual who is saying whether it's promiscuous or not. Um, A very relativistic line. So for this case, and given the data and some of the problems with the data, these are, um, I'm defining it as voluntary sexual relations with more than one partner. So the second graph there shows over the lifetime. And those who don't believe one church is true are much more likely to have uh, been promiscuous in that definition. Uh, On the far left is the number who have had multiple sex with multiple partners in the previous four weeks. Uh, I think that one pretty well describes promiscuous. Um, And it's almost it's much more likely if you don't believe one church is true that that's the case, even though this is a fairly small percentage. When you compare the third graph over is they ask them, how many people do you wish you could have had sex with by this time in your life? Uh, you can see that the numbers don't of what they wish had happened don't quite match the reality of what's happened. And so there's some regret And uh, you can see that those who believe that one church is true are more likely to feel guilty about uh, what they've actually done. And then the one on the far right is, they said, how many more people would you like to have sex with over the course of your life? And I've put in everybody who said with more than two people. Um, At this point in the survey, a number of the people were married, so you have to be careful about how you define these, so I've tried to be a little conservative on these numbers. Uh, sexual orientation. Sorry, I don't, I don't make up the data. This is just what it says, that if you don't believe one church is true, you are much more likely to either be homosexual or bisexual. That's what the data says. Now, um, this is all looking at it as if we changed our belief, what could we expect would happen to both beliefs and behaviors over time? Um, Because these are correlations, that may not be right. And we've been running under the presumption from Elder Packer that teaching doctrine is more likely to change behavior than teaching behavior is. Um, But we'll flip the argument here. Let's say the causation runs the other way. Maybe it's the behaviors that cause the belief in one true church. 
And that would be in line with Jesus' saying that uh, whosoever will do his will will know the doctrine. So, um, might need a little bit of unpacking on this here, but uh, there's a, a line down the on the middle of where if we look at the percentage of those who are engaged in this in a particular behavior or in a particular behavior who believe that there is one true church that's what we're showing here on the graph and we've drawn a line at where the national average is so if you just take national average 26% um, we're rounding to the nearest percentage here that's where it is people who read their scriptures weekly uh, are more likely to believe there's one true church. Uh, Three-quarters of them. If you bump this up to daily, then it, it shoots even further to the, uh, to the right, so it's around 82%. Those who attend church more than once a month are more likely to... Um, Uh, more likely to believe in one true religion. Those who pray daily are more likely to believe in one religion. And those who are married, uh, still 42% of those believe that there is one true church. On the other hand, those who've had sex with more than one person are less likely than average to believe there's one true church. Those who abuse pornography at least once a week are less likely to believe there's one true church, uh, those who've had more than a few doubts, uh, those who wish they'd had sex with more than one person, those who cohabitated while they're engaged, um, those who've had more have sex with one person in the previous month, those who are homosexual or bisexual, all of those are less likely to believe in one true church. So if... So our novice is arguing that the church ought to change its position, but if you look at it, um, if you look at this as the, what that will cause, um, that will cause deleterious effects across the board. If you look at it as what it might be the result of, then it's usually the result of behaviors that are not approved by the church. And those who are doing things that they ought to be doing are more likely to believe that there's uh, one true church. So if you're, whether you're looking at it as a cause or a sign of a, a problem, changing from believing in one true church to not believing in one true church is uh, not a good thing. Uh, and so we can see why uh, those who those who don't think that there's one true church seems like a rather high number that would be leaving the religion. But when you look at some of the associated behaviors and beliefs, you can kind of see why. And this brings us to lesson nine. Check your overall logic. So this is the logic of the logical argument they're responding to. The church teaches X, I don't believe X, therefore I'm leaving. Um, And the response to the argument is to say, well, the church is wrong to teach X. 
And this is a little bit like saying, um, and this is a counterfactual, I love Chinese food. This restaurant serves Chinese food. I don't like Chinese food, therefore I'm leaving. And if you went in to say, well, uh, the church or the uh, the restaurant should be serving Mexican food. They're still leaving. That doesn't address the, the the overall logic of the argument. And so you need to look at the overall logic of the argument. And finally, lesson ten. So I I picked out this one novice's argument. I haven't said who it is. Don't please don't go looking for it. I. It's it's a bad argument, and you, and we don't want bad. Truth is not well served by a bad argument. Uh, we want uh, we want better arguments. Um, I'd like this person to keep going, but do better arguments. So I'm not trying to uh, you know just don't go looking for them. But uh, the the lesson number ten. Don't give up. Use better arguments. You can. There are better arguments out there. Maybe you can come up with better arguments, but use the best ones you can. We don't need to hold on to any apologetic approach that doesn't actually work um, or that has flaws. Uh, we can come up with those that don't. And and I know a lot of you are on the front lines. Don't give up. Um, and well, uh, some recent studies that have come out show that the most important thing that you can do for your family members, whether or not they're uh, whatever stage they are in their faith, is to keep talking to them about the church in positive terms. And that is one of the best things that you can do, is just bring it up naturally and talk about it. Um, I thank you for your time, your attendance, your dedication, and your willingness to listen to... uh, um, somebody who isn't Stephen Mayfield. Um, I hope he gets better. He's a a fascinating person and an engaging speaker, and I'm sorry you didn't get to listen to him, but thank you for listening to me. Thank you. Really appreciate you stepping in for Stephen and doing, giving this interesting presentation. Uh, a couple of questions. First of all, you said it, but please repeat. Where did you get the data from with the survey? The, the data is from the fourth wave of the National Study of Youth and Religion. It was released. The data was released in March of this year. They just I think they just published the final volume dealing with the study, so they released the data. Uh, the National Study of Youth and Religion ran from 2002 to 2017, uh, and they followed the, 
that the same randomly selected group of kids started out with about 3,000 and followed them for over 10 years. And uh, so the wave four is the the individuals in their uh, mid-20s. I found it interesting that uh, we had those that believed in one true church, and yet they were engaging in behavior that would not be congruent with people who believe in one true, true church. At least, at least in my opinion, uh, some of them some of them are engaged in behavior that isn't consistent with the belief. Uh, we see this all the time, um, and we see it in the church. We see it in ourselves. Um, so we can see some difference between their aspirations, what they would ideally like, and what they actually do. There's a gap. That's why we have repentance, and that's why this is a gospel of repentance. So, um, yeah, I wish they were doing better. I wish I were doing better. But, uh, you know, there's a gap, and but that doesn't in and of itself mean the gospel is not true. I suppose it shows hope more than anything. Cause they... Yes, please look at it that way. So the, the, you mentioned about um, providing positive uh, church context for people who are, uh, you know, that, that was, that was a, a, an effective strategy. Um, yeah, this is, this is stuff that came out for the most part since my book went to press. So... Um, so a recent stu- couple of recent studies uh, that have come out, um, uh, one by Christian Smith and another one by uh, Melinda Denton, point out that they said looking at positive factors for handing down faith. And um, of the positive factors, they, they said taking your kids to church is a big positive influence. Talking to your kids about religion during the week is an even greater influence. So, and uh, one of the sociological studies, and it was kind of buried in there, um, said that one of the and it was an anecdotal case, but I think some of this other material brings it up. But they pointed out that living among some among a group of people who believed in their religion and practiced it had the effect of bringing this person back to religion after they'd left it. And but some of the other data that's coming out tends to support that. And so, um, but I think this goes back to Deuteronomy when it says talk about it in your homes when you're lying down, when you're getting up. Uh, You know, the commandment goes all the way back then. And that has, so far, um, from what the study, now, studies are only asking the questions they're asking about. And one of the comments that was made is that most of these studies didn't even ask about conversations in the home. 
but uh, the National Study of Youth and Religion did. And that has, from what they can see, that that is the statistically largest impact of what parents can do. So if you look at the other things that they found, the four things that that they found that help people keep their faith are weekly church attendance, daily prayer, regular scripture study, by which they meant once a month. But if you have it even more frequent, it has an even larger effect. And keeping the law of chastity. But those are all the things that the individual has to do. In other words, your kids have to be doing that. It's not the parents, and it's all something that they have to personally do. So that's something that helps on, and uh, we have at least anecdotal evidence that that helps in adults too. But it's all something you have to do. But as parents, the, the two biggest effects, talk to your kids about the gospel at home. And number two, take them to church with you. So it's not berating them over not following those other things, correct? Well, you mean it's the problem is you want to persuade you need to persuade your children. You're having to get somebody outside of your agency to change their behavior, their actions, their agency. The most effective things that they can do are things that they do. You have a less strong impact of what you can do, but there are things that you can do to have an impact, and those are two of them that we know about. One more question: you uh, you mentioned to uh, get you know if answers aren't good or don't work. I can think of several apologetic answers I've heard that don't work, so that people people use. But you said to get better get better answers and to change. Yeah. Well, so there are, at, at this point in our history in the church, we have lots of apologetic answers. Most of the questions, even most of the difficult questions, have answers of some sort. We haven't necessarily been as good at gauging the effectiveness of some of these. Uh, if you can spot an obver- obvious logical problem, then maybe you don't want to use that particular response. And different responses work differently with different people. Something that person A finds absolutely convincing may be ineffective with person B and vice versa. So you need to find the best answers that you can and there's no reason to stick or to just because a particular argument is available if it's not a good argument we don't need to use it and there is an answer out there and maybe the answer that you need maybe you will be the one to come up with a better answer to this particular problem and we don't really want to denigrate people who have invested the time and interest and good faith effort and they have the best of intentions but sometimes the road to hell is paved with good intentions so try to find the best ones that you can 
and the ones that are most applicable to the person you're dealing with. You're dealing, you know, I I deal with large-scale general answers, but you're dealing with individuals, not statistics. You're dealing with people, and that needs to be personalized. And you are the people who will be doing the personalizing, not me. Well, I do some, but I, I can only personally deal with a handful of people, probably about the same handful that you're dealing with. But because you're dealing with more of them than we have a, a larger spread, we have a bigger impact if you're involved and you're getting the best answers and applying them to the people that you deal with on an individual and a local level. So it kind of goes back to that work locally, work work with your family, your sphere of influence. You're not going to change the world any other way. Well, it's the best way to, to do it. At least you can improve your family. Um, and if enough people are doing it, uh, then it has a larger impact. So I've read your books, and I've always been pleasantly surprised by them. They're really well-researched. They're careful. They're, uh, they're good. They're good reads. Thank you. And so I meant to bring one up with me, and I failed to do that. So could you give them the official title of your most recent book? The uh, most recent book is called Saving Faith. Uh, last I checked, there were some in the there fair are. bookstore. Um, and... It is available on Amazon. There are some Deseret books around that still have copies. Um, and it's an exceptional I book. Would, I, I would, um, I'm hoping I can do a second edition because I've got some other good information that I wasn't able to, that came out after I did that. You got to see some of it today. Well, what I liked about your book specifically is it didn't just say things to try to make you feel good, it actually put the data out there and it put, you know, true research on, on what what was in there and such. Yeah, we... Just as truth is not well served by a bad argument, it's also not well served by ignoring the data, either candy coating it, oh, this isn't, isn't bad, or uh flying off the handle about it uh exaggerating it oh this is terrible you know the the data is what it is um, we're dealing with people the data on our actual behavior will never be as good as we'd like it to be at least not in this life um, but you know, this is a gospel of repentance. We can't repent unless we actually recognize that there's a problem, either in ourselves or in in other places. Until we see, uh, until we see our situation in the data and realize that either there we have a problem here that we need to work on, or we don't have a problem here. So we try to be accurate with the data. Uh, you know. But we're, we have to actually deal with individuals. If we know what the we know what the data is saying, we can say, "Oh, well, this individual actually does have an unusual problem," or "This is common, but we can we can deal with it." Um, but we have to be honest about that, or we're just going to make a mess. 
Right. You can't solve a problem. You can't solve a problem if you don't really know what the problem is. So thank you so much for your time. I know you stepped in at the last minute to fill a slot and uh, and you did an excellent job for us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You get the brownies.